Well, again, welcome again to uh, a service this morning for those that are here in the, in the building and for those that have logged on online. We've been journeying through the, the gospel of Luke, but before we get there, I wanted to share just briefly um, one of my spiritual heroes, a giant of the faith, J.I. Packer, passed away just a couple days ago. And I don't know if you've ever read anything by J.I. Packer, uh, but one book that I've heard from multiple people that was foundational for their Christian life was Knowing God. And I want to just read an excerpt. I ordered a few copies. I have a couple with me today. And I love giving away books, by the way, if you guys haven't picked that up yet. So don't be shy. You can fight over them. Chapter 3 is, and I'm going to read just a small snippet here, Knowing and Being Known. He says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? The knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. What of all the states God has ever seized man in gives God most pleasure? It's knowledge of himself. I desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God in Hosea 6, 6. In these few sentences we have said a very great deal. Our point is one to which every Christian heart will warm, though the person whose religion is merely formal will not be moved by it. And by this very fact, his unregenerate state may be known. What we have said provides a once foundation, shape, and goal for our lives, plus a principle of priorities and scale of values. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? I read this book multiple times in Bible college, and then it was given to me in seminary, and I've read through a few different copies. So I want to give away a few more copies. If you've never read Knowing God by J.A. Packer, friends, you need to dive into that this summer. So if you want a copy, you can find me afterwards. If you're online, just send a message after the service, and we'll get you taken care of. But I praise the Lord for a man like J.I. Packer who spent the majority of his life teaching us. Uh, we wouldn't be where we're at really as a church or myself as a pastor without J.I. Packer. And so I'll praise the Lord for him. Well, this morning we're going to dive back into the gospel of Luke, as I said. So if you haven't turned, turn there to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. This week, as I was studying, I came across a story of an evangelist, a Methodist evangelist named Peter Cartwright. He became one of the leaders of what we now refer to as the Second Great Awakening. It's said of Cartwright that he baptized over 12,000 people during his ministry of the word through the East Coast. He was a circuit rider, spending most of his time traveling from one venue to the next, primarily in Kentucky and Tennessee. And he was known, though, for his uncompromising preaching. He, he was unwilling to beat around the bush. And in 1830, Cartwright was a visiting preacher at a revival service in a church in Washington, D.C., and the pastor and local leaders 
of the church found out that coming, that coming service that President Andrew Jackson was going to attend the Sunday morning service. They were excited about the president's visit and didn't want to offend him in any way. And so in those days, they were fearful of what the president had and his power and influence on a denomination for good and bad. So in that, they pulled aside Mr. Cartwright and, and said, Peter, the, the president is coming, and, and we know that sometimes when you speak, you can be offensive. So would you mind toning it down this week? Sure enough, the president did attend the service that morning when Peter stepped up to the pulpit. The first words out of his mouth were, I understand the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, is with us this morning, and I have been asked to be guarded in my remarks. But the truth is, Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. <laughs> the entire congregation gasped with the shock of Cartwright's boldness. How could this preacher dare to offend the tough old general, the president of the United States. The church leaders were appalled, wanting to make their way to him after the service was ordered, but he was greeted first by Andrew Jackson, who grabbed his hand and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could conquer the world. Well, like Peter Cartwright, John the Baptist was not afraid to offend people with the truth of the gospel. His outspoken ministry led the great preacher J.C. Ryle to comment that it would be well for the Church of Christ if it possessed more plain-speaking ministers like John the Baptist in these latter days. And there's no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or applying smooth epitaphs to damnable sins. And I'm sure no one accused John the Baptist of flattery. He was a man who loved people enough to confront their sin. He was never shy about sin and repentance. And John has a clear message this morning for us. And so here's the main idea. And I've said this every week, so if there's any notes that you're going to take, this is what I want you to get. I'd love if you take more notes so you can learn more and apply it during the week. But if there's just one thing you write down, it's this. This is the main idea. Judgment is coming for everyone, so be prepared by repenting and submitting your life to God. Judgment is coming for everyone, so be prepared by repenting and by submitting your life to God. There will be a judgment. And John is warning those of a way to avoid this by yielding themselves to God. So here's an outline, very basic. It should be on the screen at some point. We'll put it up there um, in case you miss it. But first is the setting, verses 1 through 2. Second, the message of repentance, verses 3 through 9. And third, what repentance looks like, verses 10 through 14. So the setting, the message of repentance, and what repentance looked like. So let's dive in here, the, the setting. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Albania, during the Abilene, excuse me, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And Luke here, insisting on listing all of these names here, these Tiberius to Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herods, he's, he's surveying the political and religious leadership from the most distant to the most directly involved. In, in what's happening here with John. 
And, and so the know about Tiberius' 15th year allows us to date the start of John's ministry. And assuming the calendar being used as a Roman one, John's ministry began somewhere between A.D. 28 and A.D. 29. And only a historian could have written it like this, a man with an orderly mind. This is Luke. And so Luke introduces the political hierarchy of the Lord's day as a way to identify it. We, we tend to do it differently now, right? Month, day, year, saying today is July 19th, 2020. But if we were to follow the form, we would say in the fourth year of the presidency of Donald Trump, president of the United States, and Jay Inslee being governor of the state of Washington, and Daryl Edinger, the mayor of Edgewood, Pastor Jeff Coulter of Edgewood Bible Church delivered a sermon on Luke chapter 3, 1 through 14. What do you guys like better? July 19th? I enjoy that. It's easier. But Luke here is just giving us an orderly account. He's giving us the details so that we can be certain of the validity of what he's writing, that we could check. And so in AD 29, the word of God came to, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, it says. It's interesting to follow where the word of God goes. Because it keeps going, in Luke's gospel, the word of God keeps going to little people, the insignificant, to those that have no power. It doesn't go to the Caesars of the world. Now, Luke says it goes to the aged, to the young, to the poor, to the powerless, to the shepherds in the fields. And here it comes to Zachariah's son, who's living in the wilderness, the desert. John the Baptist is what we call him. And if we're honest... And if you read it or heard anything about John the Baptist, he makes you uncomfortable, right? Matthew says he was a strange man. Matthew says he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. He's the type of guy that you see walking on the street, and you go to the other side of the street. An odd person. John the Baptist was uncivilized with locusts stuck in his teeth and clothes made of camel's hair. I'm sure his hair untouched. He would not be photographed for the latest fashion magazine. John was uncivilized, living in the wilderness, probably unbathed. And he makes you uncomfortable. He's the kind of person you think to make apologies for if you to introduce him with friends, right? Yeah, John, he's a bit eccentric, a little off the wall, not your run-of-the-mill kind of guy. You have to just look past a few things. I'm sure deep down he's a normal person. And here's John, the uncivilized, living in the wilderness, the desert. And there's more I want to say about the wilderness, the idea of going into the wilderness, because it's a pattern that we see littered throughout Scripture, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until we get to Luke chapter 4, Lord willing with Jesus going in the wilderness. But I will say this this morning, that God often sends his servants into the wilderness to prepare them for the work of ministry. God doesn't call John, then send him in the wilderness. No, he's in the wilderness, and then God calls him to go preach. And the timing of that is significant. And in the wilderness, God prepares this man to preach. In the desert, the difficulty, the stripped down, the toil... See, the wilderness denotes everything painful and taxing with all the misery of this fallen world. There's absolutely nothing pleasant in the wilderness, in the desert. And A.W. Tozer was quoted saying, God cannot use a man or woman greatly until he wounds him deeply. 
And I'm sure for John, living in the wilderness was hard. It was difficult. And God was preparing John to preach and to preach boldly. But John was a nobody. He had no power, no position in this world. But God doesn't need the powerful. In fact, he delights to use those that have no power. We tend to think that God will only have gospel growth, that church growth will happen through our world when famous people and powerful people and rich people that God will use. My heart somehow leaps for joy when we hear about a celebrity that, that says now they're a Christian, thinking now that we have this, now we have an avenue. When God regularly says no, He may save them, but God chooses the lowly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he chooses not the wise, not the powerful, not those of noble birth. Instead, he chooses those that look foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the meager and despised to bring the world down. Low, humble them. And this is John. He, He wasn't mighty. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't rich. And we remember him for that. Today, millions of people have never heard of, the, of Tiberius, the second emperor of Rome, but they know the name John the Baptist. And, and why do we remember John? Well, that's my second point, the message, the message of repentance. He says in verse 3, look at verse 3, and he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you remember back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah what John's ministry would be. In his words, he explains to Luke, uh, through Luke, to, to explain what this message of repentance. In chapter 1, he says, He will turn away, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And if you remember in that passage, the the repetition of the word turn, to turn, he will turn many of the Israelites to the Lord, their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers and turn the disobedient. And repentance simply means a turn of one's mind, a turn of the heart, a turn of direction. And baptism is a sign of the gospel's application to one's life. Repentance is a picture of a person who has turned from sin and been united to Christ by faith. So this this call to be baptized was a serious call for the Jews. For the Jews in this context, it was the symbolic rite that, that shows that they've gone to become Jewish now. And this made John's baptism very offensive to them. It implied that unless the Jews were willing to repent, they were not really God's people and could not be counted on to receive God's blessing. Or to put it another way, in calling Jews to accept the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, John was telling them they cannot rely on their Jewishness for salvation. They had to be changed in their heart toward God. This was not a Christian baptism which symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it hadn't been instituted yet. And so Luke understood John's baptism in that it implied that the way was now open for Gentiles to repent and be forgiven. And John Piper said of this, if Jewishness was not, does not save, then Gentileness does not necessarily condemn the issue of repentance toward God. And so in to show that John's ministry had importance, Luke continues there. He says in verse 4, 
As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And friends, what we see in these verses is the language of repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. God is getting things ready for his arrival and he's coming in power to redeem his people. This is a, a leveling that is coming and John is warning the people. And we do this in our lives, right? Teenagers do this when they prepare their room to be seen by their parent that they've asked, been asked to clean, right? Or when you have invited some over your house, you prepare your house, leveling the mess so that you can have guests over. And John's duty is, is the forerunner of the Messiah was to prepare the way for the arrival of the king. And his preparation was for the benefit of the people listening because they needed to repent. And he's preaching to them. He's actually howling at them is what it means. It's heralding. He's, he's announcing something. That's what preaching is. It's not talking. It's not joking. It's not discussing. It's not dull. It's an announcement. And, and John's ministry was to announce that God is coming and they needed to get ready. And John's a prophet here. And 700 years before this prophet, the prophet Isaiah tells us that John is going to come. And that he would come to clear the path and make ready the way of the coming of the Lord. And we read that in Isaiah. Isaiah says, verse 40, this is the quote that Luke makes. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level on the rough places of plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you hear the language of repentance? A crooked highway is made straight. Mountains are leveled. Valleys being filled. See, God wasn't interested in transforming physical land. No, these are metaphors for the transformation of the human heart. He's talking about repentance. Repentance. And then he says at the very end, all flesh shall see it together. And, and then Luke says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that means all nations, not just the Jews. He's not saying that everyone will be saved. No, it's not a universal salvation. No, every culture, every ethnicity, every type of human will be saved. And there's no kind of person that the gospel cannot reach. There's no boundary that God cannot cross. And then Luke quotes John, and this is where it gets lively. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in the keeping of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. 
I raised my voice. Did you hear it? I suspect that's how John preached. This was not a warm and fuzzy fireside chat. John is preaching fire and brimstone. And he's warning them not to count on their traditions, their birthright, the fact that they're descendants of Abraham, for there is no guarantee that they will see God. And we're told to be nice, to never offend, but from the start, John is howling in the desert, loudly proclaiming a warning. See, John knows that there is a God who has appointed a day when he will pour out his anger and indignation towards sin. And the thing that we should really be concerned about is the judgment of God, not the politeness of the preacher. John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, of, to, from the wrath to come? I hate snakes. You know, every year at the church camp out, some of these kids go and find snakes. Some of you parents should be concerned. And then they bring them to me, like, I want to see that. It just kind of gives me this, blah. And he's calling them snakes. As snakes, they're scurrying away before a spreading fire. And he's saying, you're, you're, you're being portrayed. He's saying, you're like snakes. You're running to escape from the wrath to come. And he compares them to snakes because they're trying to escape danger, but they still want to be snakes. He's saying their nature has not been changed. They want to flee, but they want to stay the same. They want to escape the judgment of God, but they just want to live how they want to live. This is a warning for us to not think that we're saved by some outward action. Walking down the aisle at camp because you're afraid of hell does not save you. What saves you is turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. It's giving up control over your life and submitting your life to God and his control. And God over and again tells us in his word that he hates outward ritualistic religion. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and they fear of me as commandment taught by men. See, God sees right through our lip service. He isn't impressed with the picture, our picture of Christianity. Are you a snake? Are you scurrying away from the judgment, wanting to be saved, but not wanting to be changed? And John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't just a mental exercise. True repentance is accompanied by fruit, which is good deeds. They wanted God to forgive their sins, but they weren't interested in giving up their sins. 
And so they went to John hoping that this baptism could cover them, like an insurance policy. But if we're not truly sorry for our sins, but if we are truly sorry for our sins, then we will show it by the way we live in this world. We will live the baptized life, a consecrated life, a life separated from the world unto God. So you can hear even the arguments. He continues. He says, but we're Jewish, right? And they they believe that their connection to Abraham would keep them safe. And he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And he's rebuking their belief that because they're descended from Abraham, that they expect to be redeemed. And they're deluding themselves if they thought that their, their ancestral connections to God, their forefathers, would shield them from the wrath to come. And they have this false confidence. And J.C. Ryle said, It will save no man to have had Abraham's blood in his veins if he did not possess Abraham's faith and do Abraham's works. And what he's saying is, Your family background, your lineage will not save you. And I've heard more times than I can count the testimony of someone when I talk with them. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was, yeah, my parents were Christian. I was raised in the church, yep. And they went to church and they went to camp. I mean, they haven't been to church in a decade but they have the certificate of their baptism. And John says, throw it in the fire. That doesn't matter. And here, they're responding like Jews. My connections, I got connections. I do know the pastor. I met him once, so I'm good. If you've never repented of your sins... If you're not believing and trusting in Christ alone, you're still in your sin and you will suffer in your sins. Your parents' faith will not save you. Your church attendance and your giving will not cause God to let you into heaven. And what is sobering to me is that on that last day, Jesus will respond to many who will try to give their resume and why they should enter into God's kingdom. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. And John's not done. He says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the image here is not of a woodsman about to begin the task of chopping down a tree. No, it's a picture of this woodsman who has already done the preliminary chopping. And now the axe is at the root of the tree. The core of the tree that still holds up it is there. And for me, I picture a lumberjack just going at a tall, large tree, hammering it. And it's now teetering back and forth, hanging on just by a small piece and, and, and he's saying that the, the lumberjack has his axe raised and is about to swing for that final blow. And who would be cut down? People who were not bearing fruit, who did not show repentance in the way that they lived. This should be alarming to you, friend. 
And I pray and I've been praying that it shocks you. And I hope you understand what I mean here, but I hope that it haunts you today. Because what he's saying is those that are Christians produce the fruit of repentance. And it may be a small fruit. It doesn't have to be large. It may be small, tiny grape size, but fruit nonetheless. And see, John's picture is to say the kingdom is not that far off. The Messiah is right at the door. The axe is coming, and it will destroy the root. And he's saying, what will you do? What should you do? He's asking, don't delay. Don't delay in this message. And perhaps you've never turned in mind and heart to agree with God with your sin. And you may be religious. You may come every week. You may come because your mom and dad bring you. But if you've never repented, if you've ever turned to trust in Christ alone and not yourself, then you're not a Christian. And you may be offended that I'm saying this of you. That's probably an indication that you don't understand your sin very deeply. You don't understand the necessity of repentance. And the issue is not that your sin is pointed out. The issue is that you don't acknowledge your sin. And I don't want to deceive anyone here who's listening online. You need to understand that God made you to reflect his character and his image, but we've all sinned against him. And we have stored up against ourselves God's rightful wrath for our sins. Wrath that would justly take us down to hell were it not for the amazing love of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ. And God the Son took on flesh, became truly human, lived a perfect life, and was crucified, bearing God's wrath towards our sin. And all the sins of who? Of those that would repent and trust in him. And God raised Jesus Christ to life in victory over sin and death to show us what victory looks like. And so if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, then we'll be saved from the punishment due our sin, from the enslavement to our sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. And we will go and live with God for all eternity. And so pray, friends. If this is you, if I'm, if I'm talking about you, pray. Pray that God would give you a new heart, a new affection for him, that you would repent of your sins and ask God for a softness to his words and that he would help you repent to turn away from your sins and to trust in him. And you need to know, friends, that there are people right now, right here in this room, praying for you. You know why? Because they were once where you were at. And they know the gospel, and they hear it now. And they're praying that others would turn from their life of sin and trust in Christ this morning. Well, this is John's message of repentance. Last is what repentance looks like. John the Baptist preached repentance with such urgency and passion that people were desperate to know how to escape the fire of God's judgment. 
And I found this last section here, verses 10 through 14, encouraging. They knew that they were not living the way that God wanted them to live, and they're ready to do something about this. You could see the effects of, of this message, but they're not quite sure what, what they should do. And so John answers their questions of practical repentance. True repentance means more than just feeling sorry for what you've done. It means turning away from sin and turning to obedience to God. And so there's three groups of people here that John responds to, the crowd and the tax collectors and the soldiers. And so the first, the crowds, in verse 10 and 11. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. Remember, these are the same people that John calls the brood of vipers. He, he's, they're, they're responding back to this message. And in light of the fact that John warned that they must bring fruit in keeping with repentance and clearly stated their physical relationship to Abraham has no value, they, they asked then, so, so what should we do? What, what fruit should we bring? And you might think that, that John would say, well, well, you need to join a church and worship and, and start praying and, and reading the scriptures. And, and those are all good. We need to do that. But his command was, was for them to change how they're to treat other human beings. He's, he's, he's commanding, he's charging them to be socially concerned with other people. This isn't how they're saved. This is how they demonstrate they're saved. And the prophet's first response sounds very much like the prophets of the Old Testament, showing concern and love and grace and a spirit of sacrifice for those that had more than enough to give to those that really need. And he's saying you should demonstrate your repentance, you demonstrate your faith in God by sharing what you had. And he's saying you're stingy. You didn't have the grace of generosity. They wanted to keep things for themselves, to hoard it up. And now I need to pause because this came to my mind this week and give thanks for you, church family. Because when this pandemic started, our church family responded in amazing ways. I don't know if you know this, but we've had over $10,000 come in just for the Benevolence Fund on top of the regular giving that continued and I praise God, I praise God this week for our church family that has responded with generosity, over and abounding generosity. And I talk to other pastors whose their budgets are struggling and I, and I just praise God for our church that has continued to give and to give sacrificially. And so I pray that we will continue in this. Because from my vantage point, I don't know if this is an issue for our church. Maybe you specifically, but as a church family, we've responded by giving, by not hoarding. And this is the charge that he has here to the crowds. Second is the tax collectors. He says in verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. See, tax collectors were assigned a quarter, quota of taxes that they had to raise and they were paid on the percentage based for meeting that quota. And some misused their power and authority as tax gatherers. They were demanding of the helpless, the weak, and the poor of the land and, and getting more taxes than Rome itself required. And then the tax collectors would get more and pocket the difference. So it's no wonder they were considered the worst kind of sinner. And we'll get into this in Luke's gospel. 
It's, it's no surprise that they were despised by their own people because they were traitors to their own people. They were exploiting their own people. And yet, I find it curious, don't you, that they're, they're here listening to John preach, and they ask, what should we do? And, and John, I want you to catch this, John doesn't demand that they quit being a tax collector. He's not saying that that profession is evil. He's not saying that. He does demand that they stop using their positions for this power and abuse of power to extort money. He says you instructs them to do their jobs fairly and justly. He, he wants them to demonstrate their repentance by thinking of others as more important than themselves. And then he gives a similar command to the third here, the soldiers. See, the soldiers in verse 14 ask him, and we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And see, like the tax collectors, soldiers often took advantage of their position because of their power and position and, and their weaponry, they had ways of making people give them money. And it was a strong temptation in those days because soldiers weren't paid very well. And it's a perfect recipe for disaster here. And again, John doesn't demand that they give up their position, but to, to change how they perform their duties. He's saying it's, it's how you use the position that you have. They've been given a, a sense of authority. Now he says, how are you going to use that? And what's interesting in all three of these examples is that they all have to do with money or material wealth. Did you catch that? Fred Craddock summarized these commands. He says, food and clothing are to be shared with people who have none. Taxes are not to be calculated according to the greed of the people who are in power. And the military must stop victimizing the poor people under their occupation by constant threats, intimidation, and blackmail. And see, money has great spiritual power for both evil and good. And what we do with our wealth reveals our true priorities in this world. Are we living for ourselves only? Or are we willing to give to others? Are there areas where we're holding back our money or material wealth? And friends, I can't answer that question. You need to spend time with the Lord and allow him to direct you. See, repentance causes us to examine our own lives specifically and, and look at who, who we are and how we live. Let me end here. We, we need to think deeply about our callings, about our, our positions, our privileges, and how we're using them to either help or hurt people, to, to sin or pursue, pursue righteousness. And the examples at the end of our passage this morning give us an understanding of the temptations that we're all susceptible to. See, office workers are tempted to grumble. Laborers are tempted to cut corners. Businessmen are tempted to be greedy. Musicians are tempted to be arrogant. Teachers are tempted to be impatient. Children are tempted to rebel against their parents. Men are tempted to abuse their authority and fall into harshness with others. Women are tempted to gossip and to use their words to manipulate people. People who have been wronged are tempted to become bitter. And people who suffer are tempted to self-pity. And every one of us are tempted in some way, and we need to repent of our personal sins. We need to get before the Lord and ask, 
Who am I? What are my callings? What is my position? And then we need to ask, what, what are the particular temptations of my life and my callings, my position? What sins am I drawn toward, given in, in, in the station of life that I live? And then, friends, we need to repent of those particular sins. J.C. Ryle said, it is, a vain, it is vain to say with our lips that we repent if we do not at the same time repent in our lives. It will gradually sear our consciences and harden our hearts. To say that we are sorry for our sins is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we're really sorry for them by giving them up. And I don't know about you, but that cuts me to the heart. By turning away from sins. And if you have come to believe that repentance is only necessary to just get into the Christian faith, to, to get your way into heaven, Martin Luther has something to say to you. The first line of his 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole thing. The Christian life is a life of repentance. So what kind of sinner are you? What is your spiritual struggle? And whatever it is, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins. And, and I have news. Jesus is there to accept you. He's not disgusted with you. Jesus is not standing there with his head down thinking, oh, here he comes again. He's not annoyed with you. If you remember last week, I tried to give away a book, Gentle and Lowly. I only had one taker. So I'm going to read a portion of it. Maybe I'll give the rest of it away this morning. Dane Ortland is talking about Jesus in this. And in this book, he's not so much talking about what Jesus did or does as much as who he is. He says he is meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He's lowly. And the point of saying that Jesus is lowly is that he's accessible. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No pre prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself to come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment required. And this is who Jesus is. For, for lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards us. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart he can't ungentle himself toward any 
of his own any more than you and I can change our eye color. And so, friends, as we end, I encourage you to repent of your sins and to run to Jesus. The Christian life boils down to two steps. First, go to Jesus. Second, repeat the first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. And we acknowledge again this morning that he is more than enough for us. He is patient. He is kind. He is loving and gentle towards us. When we are wayward, and we need help this morning. We need a reminder this morning that you are for us and not against us. Perhaps we've forgotten that this week. Perhaps we've gotten confused on what's most important in this life. So, Father, bring us back to Jesus. Remind us of the truth of the gospel. And Lord, make us faithful to you and to your word. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.